study of 1 Corinthians leads us to talk about spiritual pride this morning. Spiritual pride. Spiritual pride was a problem in, at the church in Corinth. As we have seen in uh, chapter 1 through 4, the church at Corinth was divided. The church had split into uh, four different groups, each group aligning themselves under a favorite spiritual teacher. Some were of Paul, others Apollos, other claimed loyalties to Peter. And some said, we don't need any human teachers, no apostles for us, only Christ. But all four groups had the same motivation in mind. They were divided. They were aligned under these spiritual leaders because they were seeking status among themselves. You know, it's the most natural thing in the world to try to determine our status in any given group. We naturally compare ourselves against each other and then rank ourselves and others accordingly. We all do this. So, for example, a a ranking in a family might be determined by birth order or favor of the parents. Ranking in society is probably determined by wealth and position, but it's there, isn't it? Ranking in school is determined either by your GPA or popularity. You remember those days, don't you? Ranking at work is determined maybe by performance or, or by your experience on the job. That's how the world works. So it's natural to think that ranking in church is determined by spiritual things. Something like spiritual gifts or spiritual knowledge or spiritual maturity. And with this warped natural thinking, The Corinthian Christians became proud about their spirituality. They compared themselves with each other. They ranked themselves and they sought status within their local church. They thought of themselves as spiritually wise and spiritually mature. They they acted as if they had arrived spiritually. They, They were spiritually rich and reigned as kings. And the fact is, they were full of themselves, not Christ. Spiritual pride is a problem, friends. It was a problem at the church at Corinth, but it's a problem in our church too. You don't have to look any farther than this guy to see it. Too often, 
too often, friends, we take pride in our spirituality. We, we shake our heads at, at those who are caught up around us with wealth or social media. We're disgusted by, by those who embrace alternate lifestyles. You disgust me. We don't have time for, for Christians who are weak and unfaithful. And oh man, I, we just can't handle Christians or churches who have bad theology. I'm so glad I was delivered from that. Too often, we're proud about our spirituality, and the fact is, just like them, we are full of ourselves, not Christ. Because Christ did not shake his head at those who were caught up with these things. He was not disgusted by them. He had time for those who are weak and unfaithful. In fact, He sacrificed himself in love to rescue us from ourselves. Paul has spent the first four chapters of this letter addressing this issue. And now he's going to bring the hammer down in a crushing conclusion. Our sermon text today Paul explains how the cross of Christ crucifies pride and resurrects humility in its place. How the cross of Christ crushes our pride and cultivates humility instead. My prayer is that we will be humbled so that our church will be united and Christ will be glorified. Please take your copy of God's Word. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Our sermon text for today is verses 6 through 13. 1 Corinthians 4. 6 through 13, you will be helped greatly if you will please open a Bible, put it on your lap, and follow along. My goal is to read this and explain it just as it is given. Hear now God's word. Verse 6, Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that none of you, pardon me, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already, you have all you want. Already, you you have become rich. Without us, you have become 
kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held, pardon me, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's God's word. In verse 6, what we see is that Paul's argument for four chapters now comes to a close. This is the grand finale of what Paul has been getting to. It's taken him a long time to get here. But his goal, stated in verse 6, is to crush spiritual pride, which has divided this local church. He wants to crush spiritual pride, friends. And the tone of this whole thing, as you could tell by my reading, is a, a tone of rebuke and irony. I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers. He, the first four chapters, he says, I've been talking about all of this. I've been talking about the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God and the cross and Jesus and the humiliation and the wisdom and the foolishness. And, and I've been talking about the church and the servants, and I've done this and I've applied it to Paul, Apollos and myself and Peter, and now I'm telling you, I've done all of this for your benefit, brothers, that you might learn by us not to go beyond what's written, and here's his goal. What is the goal here at this point in verse 6? That none of you might be puffed up in favor of one teacher against another. You're puffed up like blowfish in your own spiritual pride, status-seeking spiritual pride, aligning yourselves, I'm of Peter, which means you're against Apollos. I'm of Apollos, which means you're decidedly against Paul. And he says now, stop it. None of you may be puffed up 
in status-seeking pride in favor of one against another. Flip that coin over. He wants them to be humble. He wants them to cultivate and grow humility. How do you do that? You just wake up tomorrow morning and say, that's it. New year, new me. I'm not going to be proud anymore. (laughs) Have you ever tried that? I have. I'm 56 years old. I I don't know how many times I've tried it, but it's like all. How do you crush pride and cultivate humility? It is not by sheer determination and discipline, friends. It doesn't work. No New Year's resolution will do that. The solution is here. Verse 7 through 13 is how to crush pride and cultivate humility. Paul says you need a new perspective. Rather than looking at yourself and looking at others, comparing, judging, ranking, you need a new perspective. You need to look at the cross because it's the cross of Christ that crucifies our pride and resurrects humility. And so he shows us in verse 7 through 13, two different perspectives that crush pride and cultivate humility. If you see pride in your own heart, if if you see spiritual pride even in your own giftedness and accomplishments and your own doctrine and your own spiritual maturity and in how you think about others around you, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, if you detect even the smallest bit of pride, then this sermon is for you today. This is God's word to proud people like me and you. How the cross crucifies pride and cultivates humility. Perspective number one is given to us in verse seven and eight. And let's understand, Paul doesn't say, okay, now guys, let's just talk about this because I really want to teach you here. No, he is angry. This church is being torn apart and he loves them very much. And so in righteous indignation, Paul brings the hammer down. He wants to crush their pride. So in verse 7, he asks them three questions that expose, I mean like just shine a spotlight on their status-seeking pride. And then in verse 8, he, he uh, well, you'll just see when we get there. Verse 7, three questions that expose our status-seeking pride. Let's read that again. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, question number three, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What does the cross say about you as a human being, about you as a Christian and a member of this church? What does the cross say about that? Number one, At the beginning of verse 7, the cross says we are all the same in Christ. This first question exposes the Corinthians as presumptuous. Who in the world do you think you are anyway? 
What difference is there between you? The cross strips every one of us as naked as Jesus was physically and exposes us as sinners. That's what the cross says about every one of us. The cross crucifies any sense that we're somehow different, somehow better than the person sitting next to us or that person out there. There's no room at the cross or in the church for status-seeking pride. Do you agree with me on that? Because there's only one status at the cross. There's only one status in the church. What is it? In Christ. That's the only status here. You are not primarily male or female. You are not primarily your race. You are not primarily your age. You are in Christ. One status in the church that does not do away with male, female, race. It only accentuates them and makes them more beautiful as God designed it. But we're all the same at the cross. We need a new perspective on ourselves. So he asks us a second question. To the Corinthians 7b, question number two. What do you have that you have not received? Spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. Ray, Brad, Mindy, Rusty, Tia, Hannah. What do you have that you have not received? So you think you're better than the other person because you have gift, this gift instead of that gift, by the way. That's why 1 Corinthians is the go-to place for spiritual gifts because they were arguing and fighting about it, ranking one over the other. So you think that you are more mature because you have better doctrine? Let me ask you a question. Where'd you get that doctrine? Where'd you get that gift? What do you have that you did not receive? The second question exposes the Corinthians as ultimately ungrateful people. They have forgotten that everything they have in life has come to them as a gift. Where did you get your life, friend? Where did you get the breath that you just breathed? Gordon Fee says, this is an invitation to experience one of those rare, unguarded moments of total honesty, where in the presence of an eternal God, one recognizes that everything, absolutely everything that one has is a gift. It's all of grace. Nothing is deserved, nothing earned. Those who experience this grace live from a posture of unbounded gratitude. But those, such as the Corinthians, who think of themselves as especially gifted, reflect a total misunderstanding of grace and miss the humility of God expressed in the crucified one of the cross. 
Number one, the cross says we are all the same in Christ. Number two, the cross says everything you have, you received as a gift by grace in Christ. How can we rank ourselves about, uh, uh, over anyone else when we've all received everything we have in Christ? It's ridiculous. They still didn't get it, so Paul asks them question number three. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Question three exposes the Corinthians as arrogant, presumptuous, ungrateful, arrogant. The cross says we're all the same. The cross says everything that you have, you received as a gift by grace in Christ. And the cross says about every one of us that we have nothing to boast about. So what? Boast in Christ alone. I don't boast in me. You don't boast in you. We both boast in the same one, the one who gave us all of these gifts, the one who secured God's grace for us and brought us near to God. We boast in Christ. Can't boast in what you didn't earn. You can't boast in what you didn't achieve. We're more like the people that we shake our heads at than we want to admit. And if we're no longer enslaved by the same sin that they are, or deceived by the same bad theology as those who get on our nerves, then it's because we've been rescued from it by God's work, not our own. So boast in Christ alone, friends. That's a perspective we need, and that's a perspective that will crush spiritual pride and resurrect what? Humility in its place. We're all the same. Everything we have has come to us from the gracious hand of God. We only boast in Christ. Man, make that your New Year's resolution. Humility, humility, humility. So then, verse 8, he finishes this first perspective, this perspective on yourselves. Just, I mean, he just crushes it. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I absolutely missed it the first time. I took these just straight out. First time I read it, I read it wrong. I'm so thankful for faithful commentators who help me get the text right. Because when I first read this, I read Paul saying it like this. You have all you want. Already. You've become rich. Without us, you're kings. And, and would that you would reign so that we would rule with you. Except John Calvin says, having been beat down, pardon me, having beat down their vain confidence, Paul now ridicules it by way of irony. Because they are so self-complacent as if they were the happiest persons in the world. 
he proceeds to step by step in exposing their insolence. That's probably just Calvin. Okay. Commentator number two. Paul now turns to irony to help them see the folly of their boasting. Paul goes straight to the heart of the matter. The words are full of irony. You think you are. You act as if you are. You are full of yourselves. So I started reading it differently. And realize that Paul is crushing their pride. And he's saying to them, because they think so highly of themselves. He's saying to them. You have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you become kings. And would that you did reign so that we could reign with you. We little insignificant apostles, if we could just reign in the spiritual majesty that you all at Corinth have had, you on your high seats who are now sitting in judgment over Paul and Apollos and Peter. What's going on here is that they have an over-realized eschatology. Big words. Over-realized eschatology. See, the gospel is a paradigm that is already but not yet. We already have salvation. It's secure for us, but it's not yet fully realized. In Corinth, It was fully realized. Man, we're reigning as kings. They didn't have time for the lowlifes around them. Martin Luther speaks of the premature triumphalism as, quote, the illusion of the enthusiasts. Those whose emphasis on the spirit overlooks the realities of continuing sin and struggle and the need for discipline and order. So Paul here says, hey, come back down to earth, folks. We still live in this age. We still live under the sun, under the curse of sin and death. Our salvation is not yet fully realized. I love how one commentator put it, Gordon Fee. He said, their perspective on their spirituality is one of already with little room for not yet. They had all they needed. Think about that just for a moment. Have you ever been at a place in your life where you felt very, very content, very satisfied spiritually? You know what happens when we get to a place where we think we have arrived, where we have all we need, and we're rich, and we reign as kings. Have have you ever gotten to the place where you felt full? 
what happens is we stop hungering and thirsting after righteousness. We stop pursuing Jesus. We take our eyes off of the cross and we get spiritually proud in and of ourselves. And at that time, we are full of ourselves, not full of Christ. And we're puffed up like that Yeti in your neighbor's front lawn. Nothing but air. So Paul gives them a second new perspective. This one in verse 9 through 13, he turns the focus away from them, but to show them themselves in their already arrived, fully mature state, he compares them with his experience. Verse 9 through 13. The cross gives us two perspectives that crush pride and promote humility. The first one is a perspective of ourselves. The second one is a perspective of life. Life, ministry, how does God operate in this world? Paul describes in verse 9 through 13, I'm going to read it again, but let me... Let me emphasize this before I do. Paul describes his condition and that of the other apostles in contrast to what the Corinthians considered their condition to be. That they thought they had everything in and of themselves. Paul knew that he had nothing in himself. So let's read again. Verse 9 and 10, where we see the apostles' status. You want to talk about rank and status? Paul says, I'll talk to you about rank and status. Verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as, well, how do you think God would rank his apostles? These guys are up there, right? They're right next to Jesus. Jesus is reigning, so his apostles got to be reigning. They're probably sitting at the right hand and the left hand. I think I remember them walking along the road, arguing about who was going to sit on the right and left hand, who was going to be greatest in the kingdom, right? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as what? Last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We're fools, for Christ's sake. But you, you're wise in Christ. We, we're weak. But you are strong. You are held in honor. But we, in disrepute. Do you hear the irony? In Christ... Are we wise and strong and held in in a more honorable place? Yes, but spiritual pride acts in that way. And the upside-down nature of the kingdom is this. God's kingdom is not about wisdom and strength and honor. When, When we look at the kingdom of God... What we see is foolishness and weakness. And so Paul says, our, our status is that we're fools for Christ. We're weak. 
and we're in disrepute. And I love that first metaphor there in verse 9. He suggests that that they are at, at the end of the games, the the uh, the Greek and the Roman games during that time. Remember, we talked in the very first uh, sermon about how that actually happened in Corinth, one of those games, and they were called the spectacles. And, and at the end of those spectacles, uh, the the grand finale, kind of like our fireworks display with boom, 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 boom. The grand finale there, the uh, grand finale there in the arena was that they would march in all of the criminals condemned for death and, and they would just let the gladiators and the, and the wild beasts just go to town. It was just a bloodbath. Paul says, we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. What's he talking about? What he's saying is the the way of the cross, the upside-down nature of the cross, is in what the world considers to be foolishness and weakness. What the world would say is is a shameful, low reputation. Paul told them, not, not many of you are intellectuals, influential, or noble, but the good news is that these are not the, the things that God values. God chooses those who are nothing to bring to nothing those who think they're something. Remember that in 1 Corinthians 1? Then God connects those who are nothing to Christ, which changes everything. And why does he do it this way? So that the nothings who have received everything by grace alone, through faith alone, can boast in Christ alone. The way of the cross is identifying with God's kingdom regardless of man's opinion. If you are living in open confession of Jesus Christ, if you are living a gospel life, it is highly likely that your co-workers think of you as a fool. As weak. Have you experienced this? It's highly likely that the non-Christian world around you thinks that you believe a silly myth. But friends, we don't. The way of the cross is identifying with God's kingdom regardless of man's opinion. To continue this new perspective, the cross gives us a new perspective on life. In verse 11 and 12, Paul describes the apostles' experience. First, he talked about their status. Then he talked about their experience. What's what's the experience of the apostles? If, If the Corinthians have arrived and are reigning as kings, what's the experience of the apostles? He says in verse 11, well, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted. That means beaten up. 
and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. And by the way, that one kind of seems uh, out of place, but that's one of the issues that the church at Corinth had with Paul was they, they, they thought badly of him for continuing his trade. They wanted him to, to just let them take care of all of his needs and, and be a churchman, and yet here was Paul continuing to work with his own hands, and we see that in other letters, how that, that became an issue, and Paul had his reasons for doing it. But Paul says, listen, our, here's our experience. We, we don't reign as kings. We, we don't have some kind of prosperity theology or prosperity gospel. You, you know what our, our experience is? We're hungry and thirsty. We're poorly dressed. We're, we're beaten up everywhere we go. We, we don't have homes, and we, we have to work. Why does he do it? Because the way of the cross is sacrificing to serve others with the gospel. You know why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did to serve us. Self-sacrifice. The way of the cross is self-sacrifice, friends. Sacrifice. I give, but I'm not sure I sacrifice. I serve, but I'm not sure I sacrifice. This has been convicting to me this week. Jesus didn't just give and serve. He sacrificed. And the cross that saved me and you calls us to sacrifice, not ourselves physically, life, but to sacrifice our time and our money friendship, some of our time off, calls us to sacrifice to serve others. Christians at Corinth weren't doing that. They were too busy in their spiritual pride, ranking themselves above each other. What did Jesus say? The greatest one here is the what? Servant of all. Servant of all. Verse At the end of verse 12 and 13, he talks about the apostles' response as they were opposed for Christ. So we saw their status, the apostles' experience, and then in verse 12 and 13, we see the apostles' response. And all of this in contrast to what the Corinthians considered to be their spiritual condition. The apostles' response in verse 12, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That's how we're treated and that's how we respond. Why did they respond to opposition in humility? Because that's exactly how Jesus responded to opposition. He humbled himself in order to save us from our self-centered pride. And now, having been saved by his humility, we follow him on the path of humility. We don't say, thank you very much, now I'm going to go live my own way. We follow Jesus on the path of sacrifice. We follow Jesus on the path of humility because the, that's the way of the cross that leads to life and the glory of Jesus rather than the glory of self. We've been saved 
from our desire to stand up for ourselves. Listen, I'm tired. I'm not taking it from you anymore. Show me that in the Bible. Glad Jesus didn't say that, right? The way of the cross is humbling ourselves as we respond to opposition. So you get that email that lamb blasts you and you know hurting people hurt people. And what do you do? You respond with humility and grace. So that coworker cusses you out again. And what do you do? Rather than getting red faced mad and going back at them, you show them the way of Jesus, don't you? You show them humility and love. The way of the cross. The cross crucifies our pride, cultivates, resurrects humility in the place. And it's only by looking at the cross that we do this. So what's our takeaway from all of this this morning? I I just encourage every Christian here, I encourage everyone to look at the cross Because at the cross, your status-seeking pride is going to be crucified and humility, uh, a humble identity in Christ is going to be resurrected in its place. Just, Just keep your eyes on Jesus and on his work in the cross and then allow that, the person and work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, to lead you on the same road of humility and sacrifice. Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This following Jesus on the the way of the cross, impossible to us. It's not natural. You can't do it. You know what you need? You need the person of Christ living inside of you, and he does through his Holy Spirit. He gives you his presence and his power to do this. That's what Paul means in Galatians 2 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look to the cross so that our pride will be crucified and humility will be resurrected in its place. What do we do with this? Number two, live in light of the cross. Live. Just look, go live, follow Jesus, the way of the cross. It's, it's identifying with the kingdom of God. It's sacrificing to serve others. It's, it's humbling ourselves as we respond to opposition. One of my favorite texts, I probably quote it more than any other. Philippians chapter two, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Imagine if we all did that. 
That'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? And I see it. I hear about it all over this, the place in this church. And not only does that make me happy, that glorifies God. Have this mind among yourselves, friends, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, here's the example. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humility and sacrifice, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Friends, because Jesus humbled himself and sacrificed himself, he is now worthy of all glory and all praise and all honor. And so as we look to the cross and live in light of the cross, that will unite the church and that will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, I I thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and his humility and sacrifice. It is our hope, our only hope in life and in death. We have been redeemed from our selfish pride by his humility. We have been redeemed from serving our self by his self-sacrifice. Thank you. I pray that we wouldn't just look at it and be thankful for it, but we would live in light of it. May, may, may you, by your Holy Spirit, your presence and power of Jesus that indwells your church, may you, may you send us out to follow you on the way of the cross, no matter what others think, so that Jesus will be known in us and through us. Oh God, I pray that you would do a good work in us and do a good work through us so that more people would join us around the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.